If you're a veteran or military spouse of an early stage startup or small business and feel like you're making it up as you go, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to The Transition, where we demystify the entrepreneur experience for veterans and military spouses who've already made or are looking to make the transition from the military into entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Iron Mike Stedman, the voice of The Bunker. I'm a Marine Corps veteran, social entrepreneur, and member of the Bunker Labs branding team. On this episode of The Transition, I interview James Suh, a Navy and Marine Corps veteran, as well as the founder of Nashville Analytics, a Nashville, Tennessee-based analytics firm. In an effort to express his passion for food and his Korean culture, in a complete 180 from his analytics venture, James recently launched Taco Diplomacy, a pop-up taco shop and soon-to-be restaurant committed to bringing the world together one taco at a time. James, like me, believes that entrepreneurship represents an opportunity for creative expression, and in his case, an opportunity to create amazing tacos. For the last few months, he's been working on his business plan while simultaneously hosting pop-ups around Nashville, all while still running Nashville Analytics. James doesn't fit inside a box. At the age of 50, he's still learning and growing and chasing that entrepreneurial bug. On the show, he opens up about his transition from the military in the early 2000s, his path to becoming an entrepreneur, and how he managed to go from data analytics to pop-up tacos. Before you hear from James and I, make sure you subscribe to the Transition Newsletter at the link in the show notes. I send out a newsletter at least once a week, and if there's topics you'd like me to cover on the show or in the newsletter, feel free to shoot me an email at mike.stedman at bunkerlabs.org. Also, check out the official 2021 Bunker Labs Holiday Gift Guide which features over 50 veteran or military spouse-owned businesses, many with promo codes for holiday savings. You can access the guide at the link in the show notes. This episode of The Transition is brought to you by the MetLife Foundation and their commitment to supporting veteran and military spouse entrepreneurs. In addition, the foundation also provides some mentorship and financial health resources to veterans and military spouses transitioning into the workforce. As always, I hope you enjoyed today's show and that accelerates you on your own entrepreneurial journey. James, welcome to the bunker. What's going on, brother? I should say, welcome back to the bunker. Yeah, man. No, uh, things are going great. Uh, 2022 is going to be a kind of a frenetic, a little bit exhausting and a bit scary year for us. But uh, yeah, excited to kind of end this, close this year out and, and jump into the next one with uh, different opportunities. Well, I'm honored you would make time for me in this show. I think you're going to bring a lot of wealth and knowledge to our listeners. You're a Bunker Labs OG. When did you start working with uh, Bunker Labs? Yeah, it was uh, end of 2017. I was introduced to uh, Blake Hogan and Nate Carden when they were building out the Nashville chapter, sort of earlier days, and uh, really got got pulled into the ecosystem. Uh, one of the first VIR cohorts coming in 2018, and just getting excited about what the organization had to offer to individuals like me, entrepreneurship wise, and then also finding ways to give back to the community uh, and, and hopefully give back as much as I was getting from it. One of the reasons I'm excited to have you on the podcast today is one, I just think you've been around the ecosystem for a while, a lot longer than me. You know, you were somebody I looked up to when I first got pulled in, had a chance to do the uh, national, what was it? The, what was it? The muster in DC, but it was for staff. It wasn't a muster. Yeah. What was that called? 
Oh, I cannot remember. Yeah, it was a great staff. And you did a crazy run out there. Uh, the old yeah. monuments and things. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't a muster, y'all. It was basically all the Bunker Lab staff and volunteers were in D.C. getting some training. Got to go do a little run around the monuments and everything. And that was when I got to connect with you. And like we were talking about before I hit record was, you know, there's a lot of people in our ecosystem that transitioned out of the military well before, you know, 2010. You know, and you're one of them. And so I feel like you bring a, a unique perspective on the military transition and you know, that, like you said, life isn't always as linear as we like to think it is. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, you know, if I reflect back on getting out of the Marine Corps, I was excited about just exploring the corporate side and seeing what the military education experience is offered on, on there. I was in no way prepared for entrepreneurship at, at the point. And even if Bunker Labs was available and somebody had presented to me. I'm not sure if I would have said, hey, this is something I'm interested in or excited about because of the the structure that the military provided. And, and I think I still needed some of that. But yeah, over time, uh, as I've worked in the space and understood the value of the experience that the military provided, the ability to work autonomously and, and thrive under pressure and execute with limited resources and limited time, you start to appreciate that these are exactly the skills that you need and the comfort level you need to, to, to succeed in entrepreneurship. So I think in that context, it's, it's not as difficult as many people believe it is, particularly for veterans. And then when you throw into that an organization like Bunker Labs that fills in some of the bigger gaps that, that we may have from the ecosystem side, the relationships, and just the simple know-how, whether it's, you know, how do you set up an LLC or an S-Corp or how do you set up a URL or do marketing? Like these types of things are critical, but they're not inherent knowledge that you pick up over time. So it's great to have have had that uh, sort of in the pathway. And when I decided to, to pursue entrepreneurship in 2017, uh, it just happened to coincide with Bunker Labs coming to Nashville, you know, within a, a year or so. So I was incredibly fortunate for that uh that connection. Yeah. People think this stuff is rocket science, but a lot of times it's just like great people, great relationships and seeing an opportunity and take advantage of it. And there's definitely an entrepreneurial energy going on in Nashville yeah. around the veteran community. A lot of successful ventures taking place out there. You know, we got Andrew Arbogast who was on here. He's kicking ass and taking names with his cheese dip. You know, we've got you launching taco diplomacy, which we're going to get into. And uh, there's just this positive vibe that's going on. And so I can see how, you know, being around at that time, it's naturally going to affect you in some way. All these entrepreneurs coming together and you're like, hey, what's going on here? I want to get pulled in, too. I want to contribute and be a part of this. Yeah. And you don't appreciate how many people are actually entrepreneurs because most people that are starting small businesses or have an idea they're in their mind, they're not entrepreneurs. They just have an idea and they're going to try to make it work. And maybe it's sort of a side gig. Uh, but as I've been exploring this, especially on the data side, it was a little different, but as I'm getting into something like the food service industry and target diplomacy, I'm finding so many of my former connections, whether they're running buddies or played soccer with, or just hung out with, or went to church with, they, they're starting to come back into my life in a bigger way. But then I'm starting to understand that they're, they've actually gone through this entrepreneurial journey before, and it just didn't even occur to me over the years, the last 10, 15 years that I've known them. So it's been great to, to connect and see how broad that community is here in the city. Yeah, we got to take back that term. Silicon Valley's hijack what it means to be an entrepreneur. 
got people running uh, small businesses, been running them for years, side hustles, whatever. And for me, it's like if you're launching a venture and you're earning income, I don't care if you're selling widgets or whatever, or even if you're doing a nonprofit or something, you know, you're an entrepreneur and, you know, we want to give veteran space to own that and uh embrace the, the the culture and the ecosystem so before we hear some more about your transition and how you became an entrepreneur first i want you to tell our audience about your new venture taco diplomacy and then i want you to take off your armor and pull back the curtain and let us know something you're struggling with either prefer- personally or professionally as an entrepreneur you know outside of this instagram me 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 i'm kicking ass and really what it's like behind the scenes <laughs> Yeah, man. Um, now, talk of diplomacy. This is this is interesting because I'm I'm actually in the data space with the data consulting business, and everyone wants that piece. and And I've been going through some stuff this year where I needed something a bit more positive in my life uh, from a professional perspective, and something tangible that is not tangible, right? Uh, it also doesn't make people happy, like like food does. So. Um, I'd say June, July timeframe, I was just sitting down with my best friend and, you know, the, my wife, uh, Carrie and, and my best friend's wife, and we're just sort of goofing around over dinner. And we just started talking about food, how much we enjoyed it. Uh, Carrie does a lot of cooking, uh, baking. I do, do a lot of cooking. We have people over all the time and just started exploring the idea of a taco concept. And we had always said, Hey, it'd be cool to just do a pop-up sometime just to make tacos for people, even if it was just a weekend or a couple weekends. And it somehow just evolved into a discussion around international flavors and taco form, how that's just lacking, and just came up with the name Taco Diplomacy more, more as a joke, uh, you know, five, six months ago. And it very quickly evolved from that as we started exploring and talking about flavors into an actual concept. And uh, a, a restaurant owner, a good friend of ours that's up the street, uh, owns a French restaurant and she came to one of our like small gatherings to eat cake, drink coffee. And uh, we mentioned it to her kind of in passing. She's like, oh, you can use my space uh, if you want to have a pop-up event. And it just it made it real. Like, oh my gosh, we actually now have to do this because somebody's offered up space. And I said I was interested in doing that. So it would have been strange to sort of turn it down. Uh, and over the last three months, we build a business plan. We talked to a uh, a real estate broker who's actually, he found us a space and we found out today, actually about an hour and a half ago that the building owner has accepted us uh, instead of several other restaurants that was interested in the space. So now we've got to find the funding and uh, build out the space and maybe around September, October, open an actual restaurant. Uh, So yeah, it's been, it's been interesting, thrilling. And to be honest, I'm absolutely terrified. So we've got a year. Um, the data business is doing incredibly well. I'm merging uh, the business with another friend of mine who owns a, a complementary data business in 2022 as well. So trying to figure these things out. I don't know what it means to be a restaurant owner. I don't know what it means to hire staff. I don't quite understand the supply chain that will on that side. Financing, I'm assuming I can get financing, but <clears throat> I don't know. Who's going to give me $150,000 when I have zero experience in this space? So these are all the things that we're working through. Um, and you know, the other fear too, right? The, does anybody like me or like my stuff? Uh, we think we have a great product and we think the food's really interesting and delicious, but most of the people that have had that are close to us, right? There are friends or colleagues or people within our community. And there's always that underlying thought that 
maybe this isn't actually as good as I think it is. And maybe my friends aren't being as honest with me as, as I would like them to be. So we hope it's great. We hope it's a great uh, fit and there's going to be a, a huge demand for, it. but you know, that unknown's incredibly scary. And for, I think entrepreneurs, right, you have the uh, opportunity cost. So if we spend, and I spend a lot of time building this business out on the taco side, it may seem exciting for now, but what am I giving up, right? Uh, free time or time with family or building the data business and not knowing if it's the right thing to do is a little bit scary for me because, you know, I'll be 50 next year and really trying to uh, establish my legacy and leave something behind. And if this doesn't work and I let something else go, you know, I only have a few more opportunities. So yeah, that, that part's incredibly terrifying. And Carrie too, my wife, she's incredibly supportive, but she's like, I'm not going to do this with you. Like, I'm not going to quit my job and do this. So I have to be willing to sort of like jump in there and do it on my own. And, and I've been comfortable with that in the past because most of my career has been in areas that I understand around engineering and technology, data operation strategy. This is so far afield from what I know that uh, I'm jumping in the deep end kind of on my own in many ways, uh, trying to figure this out. So... And you kept mentioning uh, the analytics company. Let our listeners know which what other company you have as well. Yeah. Uh, when I uh, left corporate 2017, I started a company called National Analytics. Uh, we do data-driven operations and business strategies. So we help uh, business executives and owners make sense of their expanding data asset to make really smart, efficient decisions uh, we're a, a really strong blend of operations and technical expertise where a lot of our competitors are purely technical. Uh, I love it. I love doing the work. Uh, but it, again, it's it's not as tangible as what we can do on the food side. So this is a really interesting pursuit for me. And I think it'll uh, yield positive benefits, if not financially, certainly emotionally. And uh feel like I, I'm giving back more to the community on the, the food side than I can maybe on the data side. Yeah, this is your second venture too. So you, you have kind of gone through the ringer a little bit prior, but you also have an MBA from Vanderbilt, right? You were an officer in the Marines. Um, you bring a lot of experience, but you know, you know how hard it is to launch a venture and you're not, yeah. you're not, you know, you're not lying to yourself. Like a lot of people are when they first start out about how easy they think it's going to be. Yeah. And I would say I do appreciate and value the education I was able to get over time, but I don't think it is the thing that makes me interested in to pursue entrepreneurship. What it does is close some of the knowledge gaps. You know, you go into an MBA program. I think most people with a little bit of experience in the corporate space will, will say the same thing. You get into an MBA program and you probably know 80% of the things that, that they're going to teach you. The part that's missing is the connection, right? How is accounting related to finance and strategy? And, you know, what's the specific technical framework around operations and process optimization? And you've heard most of the terms before. And there's very few things that you're going to get into and learn in an MBA program, for instance, that you're not going to be at least somewhat aware of. And here, you know, do you go and go to Vanderbilt and pay $100,000 for a, a degree? Or do you get into programs and say, hey, you know what? I want to start a business. Let me surround myself with people that know how to answer some of these questions and then just take a short course. Like I need to figure out digital marketing or I need to figure out operations. And I think 
if I were to pursue just entrepreneurship, MBA is probably not critical. Uh, I could have done just as well, I think, without that. It did help certainly on the corporate side, but I think I am pretty much done with corporate. Uh, I just, I've got the bug, entrepreneurial bug, and it'd be impossible for me to step back into that. The space. reason I bring it up was I saw a, a YouTube clip on some MBA students, and the professor said, How many of you guys think it's a good idea to start a brewery? And like nobody raised their hand. It was like two people raised their hand. And he gave everyone, he went around the room and asked everybody why you shouldn't, you know, why they don't think it's a good idea. People were saying, oh, it's not scalable. It's a lot of operations, da, 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 da. And the, the MBA students were just crushing it, right? But the professor was like, I actually run a brewery. I'm invested in one. And then there's this other one as well. And, you know, we always think this like scale, scale, scale. You know, you got to do world domination. But there's so much more to launch an adventure, you know? I'm fired up for the idea of taco diplomacy and I'm just getting you on the podcast to learn more about it. But to me, that is like a cool thing. You know, it's an expression. And then having lunch with you and Carrie, Carrie, you know, we talked about it some more. And so I'm just this big proponent of, you know, if the only thing we're looking out of our ventures is this monetary return, we're really missing out on the experience that entrepreneurship provides us as veterans and military spouses. Yeah. And I think the financial payback should be a result of doing something you're passionate about. And if, if you just pursue it for the money, and it's sure. Some people say, hey, it's worthwhile. I'm going to make you know tons of money, $100 million, and then I get to do whatever the heck I want. But I would say for most of us, that's going to lead to a dead end road because how many people, certainly in a percentage perspective, are going to be earning $100, $200 million you know, uh, exit from a business? Very few. Uh, so it's th- like the kids in college or high school that says, hey, my, I'm, I don't care about academics. I'm just going to do football or basketball, baseball, and my entire career is going to be there. And you, know, you get like one-tenth of one percent of kids even get a chance to do anything remotely close to professional. So most of the kids pursuing that dream wind up sort of fizzling out and, and losing that opportunity. So it's, I don't know, it's maybe de-risking <laughs> a little bit. And if you enjoy it along the way and it fails, you've had a positive experience. If you're doing something that you think is miserable, you hate it, and you're just doing it for the money, and it fails, you're left with nothing, right? Except a wasted decade or a wasted couple of years or a wasted uh, lifetime of, of work because you have nothing to show for it. So the taco side, I love it. Uh, if we may, did not another thing on the taco side – uh, going forward, I think it would have been worth the experience. We've had multiple pop-up events and made some great connections and got to explore some food. And it's just strange being out there, you know, flipping tortillas and grilling meat uh, when I'm used to sitting behind a computer, you know, building out algorithms or data models. Uh, it's been different. My, gr- my girlfriend had a pop-up event this weekend in New York City, and I definitely got some tacos from one of the vendors. Yeah. Banging shrimp tacos. It was awesome. So, uh, man, I'm a fan. I know about the pop-up market. It's, yeah. Like I said, it's a grind. You know, you got to get there early. You got to set up. You got to break down. It's almost like the Marine Corps setting up on, setting up for a range. Yeah, yeah. And you don't, you know, you think about that, right? Uh, if you're a, a helicopter pilot and you're up there for an hour, I think it takes, what, 20 to 40 hours of maintenance and prep. So you could be, uh, get, you know, an hour of airtime. And the pop-up events and catering events, like I told Carrie, yeah, I'll spend three or four hours getting ready and literally three or four days. And I would barely, barely felt ready to prepare for a two to three hour event, right? 
So, and it's worthwhile. We'll get a little bit more efficient at it, but just appreciating how much work it is. And you mentioned earlier, you know, what true entrepreneurship is. And yeah, you could go to Silicon Valley and you're going to be so well-funded that you can be hyper-specific in what skill you bring to the table. You know, you could write a specific type of code for a specific part of a program that does a little bit of something for an application and you're an entrepreneur, you're working at a startup. If you're an entrepreneur in pretty much anywhere else besides a valley and valley and a few other locations, you have to do everything, right? You're the digital marketing expert. You're the operations person. You're the janitor. You're, you're doing everything that's required. So in that context, I think the individuals that succeed in entrepreneurship outside of these high tech, well-funded environments are better suited to understand how a business functions or should function. Cause you know, like when you don't empty the garbage, like what does that do to the, like the morale of the environment and you're like, Hey, I'm the boss, you go empty the garbage, right? It sends up a really strange dynamic and hierarchy and you devalue individuals. So yeah, the learnings that you have as a small entrepreneur unfunded is that could be life-changing in the future, especially if you pursue it as a, as a, you know, young veteran just getting out of the military is willing to sort of roll up your sleeves and do just about anything. So speaking of getting out the military, take us back. You know, you transitioned for the first time. James had multiple transitions, y'all. But the first time you transitioned was in 1997, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. So I was um, actually left high school and I had no idea what I wanted to do and didn't see college as an option. So I went to the Navy recruiter and they uh, told me about the nuke power program. I'm like, oh, that sounds interesting. My stepdad was in the Army's nuke power program for the short period they had that. So I joined the Navy and uh, went through the program, did really well. And the Navy sent me to college to, to earn my degree and come back as a nuke officer. And from the time that I was accepted into the program until my sophomore year in, in college, I started to see a lot of requirements and framework within the Navy that wasn't suited to my interests and pursuits. And it, it didn't occur to me how ill-suited it was until I got there. It's, and Navy was phenomenal. I learned so much from it. But you have to align your work and your career trajectory to your personality and, and your passion. So, you know, the Navy, particularly the new power program, there is no room for decision-making, right? You'll, uh, I was a nuke reactor operator. They gave you, like, unbelievable number of tech manuals and if anything happened you know the uh, core temperature went down by uh i don't know two degrees and the primary the poor primary pressure went up by like four psi it told you like something very specific happened on that reactor and that sent you know 20 sailors like off and running executing to very specific checklist of you know hundreds of items to keep these sub from sinking so in that context i based on how I grew up and my personality, I liked the the decision-making process, the ambiguity and problem solving and figuring things out. And somebody had already figured all the problems out in the Navy. Uh, so going through the RTC program, I was fortunate that there was a, such an alignment with the, the Marine Corps. We had an amazing MOI there, um, Gunnery Sergeant Morales. And I started working out with and just hanging out with the Marines and realized, oh shit, <laughs> this is, this is my jam. Like I, I can do this. So I, uh, End of my sophomore year, I petitioned to the Department of uh, Naval Education Training and asked them uh, to let me transition. It took better part of a year to get them to let me get out of the nuke power program because they'd invested so much money in training me over, you know, the course of four years. 
uh, and switched to the Marine Corps. And uh, yeah, it's, it was a fantastic transition. And Marines, you know, we have this reputation that we don't think for ourselves. We just follow orders. And, uh, and it's like so far from the case, right? We have so few resources. We have the least amount of money, the fewest number of people, the oldest equipment. We have oftentimes the most complex missions. So, you know, the better you can think on your feet and get creative with the solutions, the better you're going to perform. And, and I really appreciated and valued that. Uh, so, yeah, it was an interesting transition. It was an obvious one for me. It wasn't obvious when I first joined the military, but you know, once I made it, I was like, yep, this is, this is where I should be going. And what about when you left active duty? Yeah, uh, there I took, I would say I took a little bit less risk. Uh, I left active duty in first time in 2002 and um, <clears throat> joined Anheuser-Busch. And I wanted to be in an organization that was sort of well-funded, was large and had a lot of structure. I thought I could kind of learn from a highly structured military organization like the Navy and then transition more of those skill sets to uh, an organization like Anheuser-Busch. And it was pretty formative for me. Uh, number one, I realized I didn't want to do that. Uh, I don't drink. Uh, I'll have a beer every now and then, but certainly at the time that I worked for Anheuser-Busch, I didn't drink at all. So to be working in a brewery, manufacturing beer and, you know, getting one free case of beer a week, just, it just wasn't, wasn't really for me, but the complexities of operations I really enjoyed, um, uh, learned a whole lot and then left there at the end of 2002 and, uh, joined an infantry unit, uh, and went to Iraq for a year, uh, and just had a, I don't know. There's a missing part of my career in 2002. I, I should have gone and uh, wound up leaving the, the core instead. So it was kind of a, a chapter in my life I needed to close off. How did you go from, you know, Anheuser Bush to being an entrepreneur? Yeah. Um, interesting. When I got to Iraq uh, near the end of my time there, I received an email from. A, uh, a veteran. He was working for a uh, a contract for the Department of Homeland Security. It was sort of early days of DHS. He somehow found my uh, profile on, it wasn't LinkedIn at the time. It was like some other work profile. He's like, hey, uh, we've got this position. It's logistic supply chain. Are you interested? We could use your skill set. And told him I was in Iraq. And he actually wound up hiring me over a couple of emails. And I came back and started at a from there, while I was at the uh, doing that consulting engagement for DHS, I pulled in a company called Assurian to help with the telecommunications piece of this uh, uh, interagency exercise. And one of the uh, individuals or the, the executive I brought in was a former Marine officer as well. And he was working for a startup within Assurian and asked me to join. So I think I was the 12th employee at this like rapidly growing internal startup. And Got to just really, you know, taste what it was like to be in this sort of highly exploratory mode. So they pulled me in and I literally built from scratch a inventory management, essentially an ERP system. I had no idea what an ERP was, but figured out how to do barcode scanner and things. And it got me excited that I could just jump in to an environment with a ambiguous problem definition and just like figure something out. So I wound up spending legitimately 100, 120 hours a week, uh, was a young kid. He was a pro tennis player and got burned out and quit. And he wound up working with me and the two of us, you know, we sleep in the office and we shower there and we go running at like two in the morning just to wake ourselves up and just literally nonstop, just cranking through code and building things out and not sustainable, 
not healthy, not good for family life. It's certainly, certainly not in the long run, but it was exciting to just kind of like see what it was like to be able to step in and, and do something creative and unique that uh, was adding tremendous value to, to a new organization. So yeah, that's my first, first intro. And what made you feel confident to start your own venture, you know, Nashville Analytics? Yeah, so I would say it's not it's not confidence. It's probably more fear and maybe frustration. So I have over time, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs will say this, and maybe a lot of veterans, like I've been fired multiple times in my career. And it's not – there's – People get fired for performance-related issues. They just don't want to show up to work or they're like, ah, I don't really like doing this or, or whatever. I always get fired because I want to do things a certain way. I want to work on certain things and things that I believe are valuable to the mission or the stated mission, right? As uh, veterans and as military service members and certainly as Marines, you give us that mission definition, like this end state, we're going to figure that piece out. So I've always told myself, like, I, I work for an organization's mission. I don't work for my boss within that organization. If they could define it well, uh, I'll perform and execute. So the last time I was uh, uh, relieved of my duties uh, was in 2017. I was working on a project for an organization called NASBA. And over time, I had done a significant amount of work in the diversity of the accounting profession to the point where I was hosting national conferences and, and national meetings with educators from, you know, Brigham Young University and Notre Dame and Wake Forest uh, and a lot of national agencies to really discuss what we had identified within the, uh, within the data, within accounting space. And for instance, you know, uh, I think you and I chatted about this, 0.7% of licensed CPAs are black, 0.7%. And among the 0.7% are Black Africans coming in from Nigeria and other places. So if you look at the African-American percentage, it is almost inconsequentially low. It doesn't appear that way because anytime there's a Black professional who happens to become a CPA and stay in the profession, you see them plastered everywhere. Like, oh my gosh, we have, you know, a Black female was, you know, uh, earned this, this uh, CPA designation. Let's make you know, her, the uh, chief diversity officer, like director of diversity for the firm. So they don't really get to build that stuff. So we're starting to expose and highlight a lot of these things. And I was told by uh, one of the executives at NASBA, and there was a lot of pressure from the society as well. They said, hey, you can't talk about this stuff or expose this information and data because people are going to start thinking that the CP profession is biased. And in my mind, I'm thinking, well, the CPA profession is biased, uh, whether it's passive or active. Our goal now, because we have the data, is to start working on it and digging into it and seeing how we could sort of turn the tide and really move the needle. The numbers haven't changed literally in 20, 30 years. It's, it's incredible. Well, after hosting a national event, I think we had 60 or 70 individuals from around the U.S. come for a day and a half. And I presented data without getting uh, authorization to share the info. Uh, certainly not from the, the C-suite side. So I came back and several days later, I was uh, without a job there. And for me, like I'm, I'm comfortable with that piece, right? Uh, my, my flaw in the professional side is I know my time is coming to an end. And instead of departing on my own, 
I really want to sort of like persist. Like, I don't want to quit or I don't want to fail in that piece. So even as I see it coming, I'm going to persist, uh, which is, I think, three or four times I've been fired for, for similar type reasons. When I left in 2017, I stepped back and started thinking about what I had accumulated knowledge-wise and experience over time and said, you know what? Like, I, I know this. I know people value what I'm doing uh, to a significant degree. And certainly the people in the industry, whether it's, you know, larger firms or the societies or universities said, hey, this is incredibly useful to us. We could definitely, or what you've done has been transformational for a lot of things that we're doing. So I took that as validation that if I chose to do something on my own, that there would be a client base for it. I didn't know if there was going to be a, a client base. I just assumed there would be. And then I stepped in and said, well, I believe I have enough of the competencies to be good at it. My fear, though, going into this is, you, and I still struggle with this in many ways, is I have so much informal training. I don't have a single course that I took in data analytics or data science or coding. I've learned it all along the way. Uh, teaching myself SQL or Power BI or Excel coding or MDAX or whatever it is. And when I have a conversation with people that that have the formal training, they'll bring up these really complex terms and and speak to me in a way that makes me feel like, oh, shit, maybe I actually don't know what I'm doing. Maybe I can't really compete in this industry, in this space. And that was that fear I had to overcome. Like, you know what? screw it. I'm going to jump in and do it anyways, because I believe how I'm approaching it is differentiated enough and I can appeal to customers. And I think for many service members and certainly service members with both military and civilian experience, we bring so much to the table, but so much of what we bring is predicated on real world experience and less academia. And we don't appreciate how valuable that is. So we have uh, clients that I'm building on national analytics on the data space, and we have pretty darn close to 100% close rate when we get to that conversation because we can talk about it in a way that is more reflective of how business leaders see it. You know, having, you know, worked in construction or janitorial work or food service, and then also spending more of my time in operations. I know what an executive needs. Certainly better than a data scientist who's done nothing but academic training and can you know run a circles around me in coding, but they don't know how to frame a question that needs to be answered that's valuable to the business. So and it's a super long-winded answer, but yeah, it was it's genuinely fear. Like I wasn't confident in in that, but then heck, I was more afraid to step into another corporate environment and realize again that I wasn't a good fit and it was going to end. So at some point, you just say, "Hey, it's time. Like I got to do something different." What you were talking about, I was actually thinking about not too long ago, but not in some fear kind of mindset, but more of like, I'm a Naval Academy grad that does podcasting. And I was a Marine infantry officer, and I didn't know how to podcast two years ago. And I built an entire company around it. Yeah. And it's one of those things that where you ask yourself, like, man, like, who knows what we're going to be doing in the future? Yeah. You know, and it's really about those of us that can get after it and learn. And to what you said, right? A lot of times I think, right, on the analytics thing, you're not just selling features. You know, what is this doing for this person's business? How is this going to help them win, right? So when I come in podcasts and I'm not talking about 
voice tones and voice levels and all this. I'm talking about how this is positioning your brand, how this is going to help you communicate your value, how our process is to help you do that. And it gets away from all of the stuff. I think that um, it gets focusing on the things that are most important. And we have the ability to have those conversations. And then something else you said, which I keep finding over and over again, the number of entrepreneurs who have just kind of been fired or gone through some transition there, like that's it. I want to put fate in my own hands. And that's one of the things that gets them to start a venture. And I just see a lot of overlap in your story with a lot of what I've seen here on the transition, as well as some of my reading outside of the show. Yeah. And, you know, I think the, um, education system, economy, corporate structure is really tailored towards that 80%, right? This is sort of the standard deviation of individuals that we want to sort of like build this entire economy around. So some of the smartest kids you'll ever see going to school are going to get the worst grades because the academic education system is not tailored towards their learning style. And if we start to more appreciate that these different approaches can be hugely valuable, I think, you know, we do so much better, not just for the people that it affects directly, but also for like the economy as a whole and academics, you know, in general. Uh, yeah, I think it's it's a bit of a shame uh, because they want everyone to sort of like fit into this sort of bucket. Hey, you're going to come in and you're going to have skill A, B and C. We don't want you to do anything else be great if you just know how to, I don't know, make this specific widget or type these three keys in 5,000 times a day. And that's not, you know, I don't want to dumb down all of the corporate roles and jobs, but it's suited to a large number of people. But man, just neglecting this like high potential, highly creative, like 10, 20% that don't fit into that mold, I think is detrimental to us. And I think some organizations have found a way to tap into that. And maybe this is where Silicon Valley does do a really good job with that. But you see people like that, individuals like that, or like us that are scattered throughout the U.S. And many of us don't have that structure or context to be able to lean in on. So we got to just figure it out on our own. But I think most of us are now getting more comfortable figuring things out on our own because we have no option. And when you started Nashville Analytics, it was just you solo dolo, right? Laptop. Oh, yeah. Got your iPhone, just getting after it. Yeah. I actually sent uh, an email. I was talking with Carrie. She's like, we need to go on more trips because every time we go on a trip right before that, we wind up closing a big deal. So I sent an email out to uh, a contact that I'd worked with. This one was in the accounting space and said, hey, uh, I'm actually going solo. Uh, Love working with you guys in the past. Like, uh, you guys have any projects that you'd be interested in? And literally minutes later, I got a, an email back like, yeah, we've, we're actually working on something. Your skill set would be incredibly valuable. And uh, it's interesting. And this is where, you know, there's some luck, uh, some persistence. In nine months, in that one engagement with that one client, I made more money than the entire year that I did in, in the other one. And like by a factor of two, uh, because... In the corporate side, when you have a unique or differentiated skill set, your value, your time is devalued, right? Like, hey, do as much as you want, but we can't really pay you more. We can't like give you whatever position. So that was really eye-opening for me. And, and certainly there was an enormous amount of luck, right? It had to be the right company. They had to be working on the right project. Uh, so yeah, it's been, it's been just an, an interesting journey and, and certainly... You know, it has been luck, but I think I've been been prepared to take advantage of the lucky uh, breaks that have come along. But yeah, just me. 
And so around this time, this is when you got connected with Bunker Labs. Yeah. Uh, actually, there was a few friends of mine uh, when they heard I was starting my own business. They, they told me, hey, you got to go to this organization. It's called, I think, Bunker Labs. And they just like, you know, hang out and, and drink beer and like catch up. And for months, I thought it was just a social gathering, just sort of like you know, bumping elbows and kind of telling old war stories. And I didn't appreciate for several months that it was something I would be would be able to get any value out of. And I went to the Entrepreneur Center, another uh, entrepreneur hotspot, and Nick and Blake just happened to be holding office down there and uh, saw them like, oh, hell, here you guys are. Let's let's chat for a little bit. And from then, it really started to expand and grow. And, and I think because it was a rather nascent organization, not really well known at the time, and you know they were sort of grinding, trying to build it, I liked being involved in those stages of, of organization. So yeah, I started hanging around more and uh, volunteered to be a city leader. And I think I did that for about a week before uh, Bunker started using me to do some of the data work, data analysis, and got kind of excited about that. And that's about the time I went out to DC and just met the group. And, and, I, and I don't know if this is just remembering this now. I had very very little interaction with the veteran community for the first decade that I, you know, when I left, left service, maybe a little bit over a decade, because the types of roles that I was in is not one that you would normally see the veteran sort of pursue and potentially get to. So it was invigorating for me to kind of like, remember the, the camaraderie and, you know, the, the old language. And I really talk about experiences to individuals who genuinely appreciate the value of those experiences because corporate side, like, we're just all like an anomaly. You know, you go in and everyone's got their war room and you start snickering a little bit like, <laughs> what war are you guys fighting here? Uh, so it, it's been interesting. And, and I think I was reinvigorated by by that connection. And, and certainly, as with most people involved in Bunker Labs, like none of us should be there forever. And I was excited to be able to contribute for about a year and a half or two and, uh, you know, hand the reins off to other individuals. And because I think that exposure to Bunker Labs, you know, whether you're working full time or volunteering as ambassadors is really formative. I can relate to so much of what you said, too, because, you know, it is invigorating getting connected with your tribe again. But when I left the military, I definitely did not want to be the campaign cover wearing nothing against our listeners that wear your campaign covers. But like I was trying to establish a new identity for myself in the civilian world, not just be viewed as a Marine or a veteran. But as an entrepreneur or whatever else I was going to be, but when I first got connected with Bunker Labs, I remember that excitement, you know, that being on the outside looking in, you're like, this is cool. They, they got their little booth set up like they know what's going on. And so, you know, sometimes I take it for granted being on the inside and thinking about how many more veterans and military spouses are out there that still haven't gotten pulled in or still feel out there like they're on their own out there. And we're able to connect them through platforms like this. Yeah, for sure. You know, we left, uh, I don't know if you had the same perspective. I know most of uh, my buddies, you know, going through OCS and the basic school, you're going through this, you're like, this shit sucks. Like I, there's the worst experience of my life. I can't wait to get out. And literally months after you get out, like, you know, that wasn't that bad. And then you reflect back a decade or so later, you're like, that was some of the most exciting, most fun I've had in my entire career, right? Like that type of adversity or the stressors, but you never get to experience things like that anymore. So it becomes formative. And 
I think the same thing with the relationships you get out and like, I just want to restart. Like I'm done with the military. Like there's a lot of things that were great. A lot of things that were frustrating. Let me just sort of like get a refresh and not get pigeonholed. And then you don't realize, and many of us, like it, I would have realized if I got reengaged, you know, eight or nine years ago, that like, oh shit, this is great. Like I'm excited to be back, but I had to sort of like work my way back towards that over a decade. And yeah, for sure. There's thousands of veterans out there that, are probably in the same boat. Like, hey, I, I just, I'm done with the military. I don't really care about it. But as soon as they step back in, you start clicking and saying, hey, this is it's a great group and I can get a lot from it and I can contribute a lot to it as well. I'm sure during the pandemic too, there was a lot of self-reflection for a lot of people, right? Like what's important in life? You know, life is hard for everyone. I don't care who you are, right? It's challenging. But you come out on the other side of this pandemic and you're like, I'm launching taco diplomacy. So it seems like, do you feel like a lot of your past experience and everything is kind of bringing you to this point? Yeah. So, you know, if, if I talk a little bit more about taco diplomacy, it, it really, as you dig into the details, is really a culmination of, of who I am. So, you know, I grew up as a, a legitimate child in, in South Korea. My mother was a prostitute. Like I didn't belong in that society. Uh, I had no place. One of the only ways for me to succeed or even have a way out was to move to the U.S. Uh, I was not a Korean citizen because, you know, if your father's not Korean, you just don't have the same rights within that country. So, you know, as you grow older, you realize that childhood sucked and it does for a lot of folks, but you start to remember things that weren't so bad. And some of the most positive memories I have in South Korea, you know, even as like a five-year-old was just running through the streets on my own and just kind of exploring and like tasting the, the street food. And I've got this, this vivid memory. Uh, I could taste the flavor still from 40 something years ago of uh, the street food called tteokbokki, which is like a Korean spicy rice cake, uh, amazing flavors. And, and, you know, when I think about the taco diplomacy and, and trying to pull out some positive experiences and memories of my life in that time period, it's the food. So I wanted to build for myself a way to explore and recreate the nostalgia of that moment. And I think with the taco diplomacy side and sort of the naming of it, it's just not a quirky name. Really, the idea is for me, maybe twofold. One of them is being able to recreate this is really comforting flavors for a lot of the immigrants in the U.S. that came from around the world to say, hey, this is great. This brings me back to my childhood when, you know, things were different. You know, imagine the families like coming from Afghanistan right now, like ripped from that culture and yeah, maybe better in the U.S. and maybe more stable, but you start missing things out there. And, and there's no better way to sort of recreate that, I think, than through food and through the smells. So if we can faithfully recreate those things and it brings some positivity and some joy to me and some positive memories, I think I can do that for a lot of other individuals as well, right? With a German taco or an Irish or a Afghani taco or a, you know, a, a, an Ethiopian taco because there's amazing flavors from around the world. But then the other parts or the diplomacy side is we're such a divided society right now, right? We look for ways, and maybe this is inherent to our species, 
we look for ways to differentiate ourselves from others, right? Uh, just to building acrimony, like you're on the left or right, a pro-abortion, anti-abortion, gun rights, whatever it is, right? We find ways to distance ourselves. And when you boil things down and you don't talk about that stuff, we're so similar in so many ways, right? You sit down to dinner with somebody and you don't talk politics, you don't talk religion, you just talk about experiences and like tell old stories, like some of the best people. And then somehow, you know, you talk about, hey, um, I go to church every Sunday and I'm anti-abortion. So now that's the worst person in the world because you're like, you know, uh, pro-choice. And that, that, that stuff we kind of want to get around. And I think on the, again, on that diplomacy side, like if you can expose people to different things uh, in sort of like a food format, it it opens up the pathway maybe to have broader conversations, right? Because they're still in this country. Think you having been overseas, me overseas, like we we appreciate genuinely the sort of the beauty and the value, certainly I do, of the the culture in the Middle East and uh, uh, like the kind of the positivity around Islam and things in a different way, despite not being that background, having that background exploring and, and it's largely around the food side. So yeah, like I, I think maybe it's big picture, maybe it's pie in the sky, but I think this is a path or a channel for me to maybe at least incrementally progress the conversation and, and bring people together in a way that, that they may not otherwise be brought together. Hey, some people march and protest. Other people make tacos, you know, open breweries. You know, they create spaces where, you know, we all contribute in our own way. And I love this idea of, you know, I don't think I ever experienced a negative time eating tacos. No. Right? Just the okay. experience of it, right? Like, especially if it's like a pop-up taco or something. Like, I always associate eating tacos with, like you said, doing it with other people, having fun while doing it, just like a relaxing day. Let's yeah. go grab some tacos. So I, I definitely see that from a branding perspective. Now, you've mentioned business plan. When you did National Analytics, did you do a business plan? And for the business plan for taco diplomacy, what have you learned going through the process that you'd like to share for our listeners? <laughs> yeah. So I will say for to launch Nashville Analytics, I didn't have a business plan because it was spur of the moment. I didn't have a job and I had to start something. So I stepped back and said, hey, I'm just going to do this. So you jump into and roll. So I would say the plan that I developed over the next six to seven months wasn't necessarily a business plan as much as it was sort of like a growth strategy. Uh, I didn't get to execute to the growth strategy because I really wound up putting Nashville Analytics on the back burner a little bit and jumped into supporting uh, the Bunker Labs environment. And instead of trying to grow my business and do Bunker Labs, I put that scale largely on the back burner and I'm starting to reintroduce that. So I am now rebuilding that business plan. I have a strong uh, collaborative partner that that's building on the healthcare space. So we are going to collectively build a plan going forward. So on the taco diplomacy side, yes, if I had the business plan before I started on the national analytics side, I know I would have done much better. I, without having that, I had told myself or convinced myself that I can do anything in data. So I'm going to present myself as being able to do anything in data. And it's great for me, for my ego to say, hey, yeah, you, you need it done. I can do it. But 
it's very confusing to the market, right? You can't be all things to all people, no matter how good you think you are. So the business plan would have allowed me to really focus or hyper-focus in on the client base that I think would be most open to the type of work that I did in the approach. So we're applying that to the new uh, national analytics sort of strategy going forward. But that did get me thinking around business planning and, and financial forecasting. So I spent probably 150 hours building taco diplomacy business plan because I knew how important it was. Number one, for me to validate the idea for myself, is this going to work? Let me put all the financials and performance together. Let me do some market analysis uh, and just really generally understand where we fit from a competitive position perspective or product position perspective. Once I convinced myself that it's going to work, then I, you know, built a story around it to say, hey, this is why, you know, this goofball with no restaurant and experience at all is going to be successful because appreciating that I can't go out there and, you know, drop 150 grand and just like open the business on my own. I need other individuals to be able to jump in and help me out. I have to convince people that, yes, I can do this. On the data side, I'm like, ah, I don't need to convince anyone. Like, if you don't think I could do it, screw you. Like, I, I'm going to do it anyways for somebody else. Restaurant, I have to, you know, sort of let down my guard and say, hey, here's my weaknesses. These are the things I can't do and who I'm bringing in to help me out and things. So it's been beneficial to me. And because I learned or appreciated the downside of not doing a business plan at National Analytics and spending the extra time, it allowed us to, despite having no experience, differentiate ourselves uh, against individuals that have started multiple businesses. And despite that, they selected us because of all the due diligence and sort of the financial projections and things. Um, so yeah, it's been good. And I would say uh, I there are so many frameworks that are available out there. And for me, and if, if anybody out there wants to sort of see my business plan or want me to share the framework, I'm happy to do that. Uh, you just sort of like take somebody else's frame and structure and categories and you just put your ideas and thoughts to it versus just trying to start it from scratch. I've done that a few times and spent hundreds of hours and wound up throwing it away because it just doesn't flow correctly. So you, you basically you're telling our listeners that it's a good idea to at least take a pass at a business plan. Yeah. Cause you have to convince yourself it's the right thing to do and it forces some rigor because if you sit back and say, Hey, I've had people that came to me and said, Hey, I've got this great idea, a great invention. And they're so bought into it and so excited about it and feel it's differentiated that they're going to like spend all their time and resources. And what a business plan does, if nothing else is forces you to do some rigorous analysis and ask some tough questions. Like what's the actual market? Like for me, we went through and there are untold dozens of Mexican and taco restaurants in Nashville and every month another one or two is opening up. So I had to say, okay, how the heck am I going to start a taco restaurant where there's so much competition, even the best ones in town, nobody wants to drive more than five minutes to because there's one just about as good, you know, three minutes down the road. So for me stepping in saying, okay, that's a competitive environment. How do we differentiate? Let's make this Korean and international tacos with very different flavors. And we're going to do handmade tortillas. And that wound up being unique enough with the market analysis to say, yep, we can actually do this. Otherwise, you know, I could have been going in there spending a hundred grand of somebody else's money and 50 grand of my own money and, you know, wind up with nothing. Uh, and you don't have to spend a hundred hours doing it. This is my nature to, to do that. 
you could probably knock out a good one in 40 or 50 hours. So one of my goals, I've done a couple episodes on the transition, giving advice on launching a new venture. Yeah. I'm very much a quick start. So I'm like the one page, two page kind of guy, but I know how to write business plans. Cause I'm just, I'm so much in the literature and I've already written multiple at this point. So I can appreciate the thought process that goes, what's your marketing channel? What's your distribution channel? You know, what's your competitive? I know that before a lot of people on the outside looking in, they don't necessarily know this stuff off the, off the bat. But I want to ask you this for business planning. How do you balance the planning with the execution? Yeah. So let me, I'd say I spent that much time on the business plan. I'll say half the time that I spent was on the pro forma and the financial projections. So, you know, I was, I benefited from the data background, the context, because I could put a model together that says, Hey, what happens if I increase the price of a taco by 50 cents or modify the product mix or the, you know, the cost of goods or the prime cost goes up by X percent. I could do all these scenario analysis and then tie in market growth, you know, the sort of macroeconomic factors and things. That part was for me, the thing that triggered and said, Hey, the financials work, even in very conservative, conservative estimates in this particular location, we're going to generate enough to at least break even, which was great for me. So I'd say, in some startups that don't have, you know, like really high cost of service, like the national analytics side, I literally have no overhead. I may pay for Microsoft Office and, you know, that's like 35 bucks a month, but everything else is just margins for us. I work out of my home office and things. So the rigor around business plan, like quick start, I, I think you can do something like that. When you're investing some money in there, like uh, you want to start a 3D printing company or, you know, make hats and sell that or T-shirts, you have major capital expenses and you have major inventory requirements. Um, the cash gap sometimes is pretty significant with some of the vendors. So if you don't do your due diligence, you're going to wind up potentially bankrupt because you haven't put some thought to it. So. I think that part's really important for me. I built that on the side, but also appreciated that in order to do that, you could plan all day, but, and I can say, Hey, this is where the, this is my target market. And this is how much I think they're willing to pay. Uh, this is the, the product mix. I think they're going to be most interested in the only way to know for sure is to do the event, which is why we had multiple pop-ups and I did a catering and we just like sort of went over the top to do that side. So, I don't think there's, to your question, an exact answer for everybody. It's just talking to the people that have been in the industry and said, hey, where did you spend your time? Was it just in product testing and like doing these actual events? Or did you spend a lot of time on the business product market fit research market analysis or the pro formas? And it's going to vary based on the, the industry. If you're well-funded, you've you got you a great idea. A very, yep. Yeah, I think you brought up a very good point about if you're in a consumer packaged good industry or the food industry where the margins aren't as strong as say like service, right? You really got to know that plan and that numbers and everything else. Cause you're going to be fighting for margin versus, you know, when you're running a service company with a laptop, you know, it's a lot different. So I'm going to think about that. I think that's good advice again. Cause I, one of my plans to do on this show is to walk people through how to do a business plan. But I also like what you said about, you know, not doing just one at the expense of the other. You're working on the business plan while also validating that people want to actually buy your tacos, that you have something that the market wants 
And I think it's a, a good mix. So uh, great advice on that. As you look to the future, tell our listeners what your BHAG is, that big, hairy, audacious goal. You know, in an ideal world, what are you working towards with Taco Diplomacy, Nashville Analytics, or wherever else James Suh is going? Yeah. Um, you know, I think a month ago, I would have said I'm trying to do one or the other. I'm going to see where the traction is. Uh, but everything is sort of coming together at once. So I'm in a position this year where I, I, I actually have to do both the data side and the, the restaurant space. Uh, so yeah, I think on the, the BHAG side, it's, can I do both? Like I want to build both of them out and I want both to be done well and successful. So how do I bring the right people around me to be able to execute both the data business growth strategy, national analyst growth strategy, and the uh, integration strategy along with the, the restaurant thing, because I don't, in my mind, I should focus 100% of my attention on one thing and just do one thing really, really well. But in my heart, I feel like I can I can do both. Uh, and, you know, if I can't, I'm going to certainly go down trying. Uh, I got plenty of hours during the week, and, and I've spent, in many instances, 100 plus hours a week doing this thing, and I could... I could sustain that for six or seven months, and and hopefully at that point I'll achieve enough scale to to make both things uh, both things successful, and and maybe one feeds the other, right? So you're trying to take my B hag, you know? I'm trying to be a one man venture studio, and I've actually been doing research on how people do that, how they run multiple businesses, yeah. and the key is they get everybody on the same operating systems. Yeah, you know, we use the same. Uh, operating system for this. We use the same financial system for this, yep. you know, HR system for this, and you make it all work streamlined. And then you start a company, you put a CEO on it, start another company, you put a CEO on it. So yeah. I'm with you. And uh, we're, I'm going to be rooting for you down there in Nashville. I got to come check out some of these tacos. Yeah, yeah. And so as we wrap up today, you've got listeners tuning in from all over the country, all over the world, veterans and military spouses, what closing remarks would you like to leave them with as they continue to pursue, pursue their own entrepreneurial journeys? And how can we as a community support you and your efforts with Nashville analytics, taco diplomacy, and whatever else you got up your sleeve? Yeah, it's great questions and requests. I'd say on the entrepreneur journey side, it's genuinely your journey. Like, don't look at somebody else's journey, somebody else's idea and say, Hey, I'm going to try to replicate that. And I like doing what they did. Uh, I was looking at, uh, we're driving by a street and one of the streets close to our home, there's like seven Vietnamese restaurants. So one Vietnamese restaurant opens like, Oh, they're, they're doing well here. We're going to open up because we know we don't have to take any risks. So eventually over time, like everything gets a bit diluted. And then there's another street close to that where all the bubble tea shops are. And if you look on the map, literally all the bubble tea shops are within like this one mile stretch. And I think this is because there's a bit of fear that maybe your idea is not good enough. And I think if you step back and say, hey, I get it, I can learn something. And, and you take away that you can be successful if you have a good idea and it's predicated on your unique value proposition, but not feeling obligated to do the same thing somebody else does, right? Like somebody may say, hey man, I love what Mike's doing. I'm going to start my own podcast or I'm going to start my own data company or tacos sound great. Let me do that. And if if it's you, fantastic. But if that's not you and you have to sort of stretch a bit on your passion, 
even if you're successful, you're not going to be happy with that. So appreciate that you can be successful doing the thing that you're genuinely and uniquely uh, well suited to. And the other piece, if you've worked, you know, a decade and you have a couple of years of experience, at least on the civilian side and the military side, you have something unique that you can present to the world that people will be willing to buy. And, and sometimes it takes some self-reflection. Sometimes it takes a, something shitty happening in your life for you to step back and just really appreciate that. But yeah, keep looking for it. You'll find it. Um, as far as what the community can do for me, uh, I think just knowing that the community's out there supporting and rooting for me is fantastic. And the other side, if you guys have some great like taco ideas from around the world with unique recipes, man, send them my way. We'll like do some exploration and uh, if we like it and it works out and you sign off on it, we could have like a, I don't know, your own taco on our, on our little, little page. So, yeah. Love it. Where can they find you at? How can they follow you? Yeah, we are uh, taco diplomacy is on social media. Our website's really not built out yet, but if you just go to taco.diplomacy on Facebook and Instagram, uh, we're posting a lot of things. You could sort of like follow the journey and uh, yeah, uh, we've got a website on Nashville analytics, but I will say, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs will say this too. Like we don't do a lot with our website. Uh, it's there. I put it up about three, four years ago. Today, we're much more focused in what we offer. And many of the things on there are not necessarily as relevant because I found that the uh, industry is not asking for, for everything. So, yeah, but if you want to learn a little bit more, just check on our LinkedIn page and uh, yeah, or reach out if you want to have a chat. I'd be happy to talk. Well, James, been a pleasure chopping it up with you. Again, I appreciate you making time. So many nuggets in this interview. I mean, we talked about life being in the transition, you know, all that goes in from, I mean, we went back to like 1997. I don't even know what I was doing in 97. I was probably still watching Fresh Prince of Ballet or something else, you know? Uh, but again, I think this is going to resonate with a lot of our listeners. And uh, we wish you nothing but success with Taco Diplomacy and everything else you're doing. And uh, we appreciate you for spending this time with us. And for all our listeners, do us a favor and make sure you subscribe to the Transition and Pod to the Transition Podcast and newsletter at the link below. As a reminder, I release a newsletter at least once a week and a podcast once a week where you can leave a comment. And if you have any questions about your own venture, be sure to leave that on our newsletter platform, Substack as well. We're always looking for content and would love to learn about what you all are struggling with in your own ventures. So feel free to shoot us an email at mike.stedman at barkerlabs.org. 